During this series of worship services on belonging and beyond, we're going to be hearing many personal stories. Stories help shape community, help create a place where we can belong when we know each other's stories. Each week we'll give you a storytelling prompt and we'll ask a couple of people to get the ball rolling. The two testimonies you're about to hear are meant to do just that, to spark storytelling among the rest of us so as to strengthen our community of belonging. Today's storytelling prompt is, tell of a time when someone did or said something for you that ultimately redirected your life path or helped you see something you previously were unable to see. First, uh, Susan Bedell, one of our members living in Richmond, will share her story by video, and then David Brubaker will share his story. This is not the first time I've told this story at Parkview. I've decided to back up this time into the drifting, colorful, lost nature of my journey, setting the stage, so to speak, for the miraculous appearance of this devout Quaker woman, Mary McClellan, into my life. I was raised in a musical family, so studying piano and violin was a natural part of my upbringing. When it came time for me to go off to college, I followed my violin teacher's advice and applied to Barnard College in New York City, where his sister had gone. That was the end of doing what I was supposed to do. I soon veered off course, choosing anthropology as my major, went off to Ghana to build a hospital, got malaria and then typhoid fever, was shipped home after six weeks, played in a Javanese gamelan, wrote my thesis on the food and music of Java, went off to be a hippie, lived on Joan Baez's commune in California, returned home to become a teacher, entering an education and community program, discovered the existence of dance therapy, thought it would be lovely to be a dance therapist, so moved to Boston to enter a program in dance therapy, but had to be in therapy in order to be in this program. While this eventually fizzled out, I got a job in a hypertension detection program, going around neighborhoods, taking people's blood pressure and asking them about their lifestyle until a guy wanted to show me his gun collection and I hightailed it out of there. So they repositioned me in the clinic where they attempted to teach me how to draw blood when I fainted and that was the end of that. I had tried three things that felt normal, teacher, therapist, nurse, and failed in all three endeavors. It was somewhere around that time that a friend of my parents, a devout Quaker woman, invited me to have lunch in her home. I didn't really know her, but didn't question the invitation. I just went. I don't remember anything about the lunch except what happened as I was leaving. I was standing by the front door and she said to me in her tiny Mary McClellan voice, Susie, I think God has given thee a gift. I think thee should use thy gift. I didn't know at the time what she was saying, just nodded politely and left. But in retrospect, it is clear that she was referring to the eight years of studying the violin I had thrown out the window when I went off to college and beyond. It is clear as well that this strange encounter is what led me back to studying the violin and to making it my life's work. 
I moved shortly after that lunch to Philadelphia to live with my then boyfriend, having no plans other than living with him. But I did open to the M listings in the yellow pages and found music schools. Saw there was a Philadelphia Musical Academy, brought my rusty old violin and rusty to non-existent violin technique to an audition and was taken under the wing of one of the best teachers in the United States. And the rest is history. What was not clear at the time, nor for years to come, was that this work would be way more than a career and way more than what my parents' Quaker friend could have known. I would find out in retrospect that indeed God had sent me down that path in order to immerse myself in the great religious works, which would become one of the important conduits for experiencing and integrating religious thinking into my very being. So I've been joining worship regularly via streaming the last two years, and I've really appreciated those of you who provided that. But I'll have to admit that being in the room when uh, you're playing the organ and others are playing the piano and the guitar has a very different feel. So it's wonderful to uh, feel it as well as hear it. Mert and I were married in August of 1981, and a year later we went to Brazil with Mennonite Central Committee for a three-year term. Our first two years were mostly delightful full of new people, new language, new landscapes, and much learning. We lived in a favela called Nova Descoberta, means new discovery, on the margins of the city of Recife, and we became an integral part of the Catholic parish that worshiped and served in that very low-income community. Our third year, however, was markedly different from the first two. Brazil was in transition from military rule to civilian rule, and the transition was marked by spiraling crime and violence. Our little home was broken into three times in a several month period, and everything of value was stolen. Uh, much more devastating, Mert was assaulted twice in our own neighborhood, once at gunpoint and a second time at knife point. After the last incident, we realized that we would have to move out of the favela. The remainder of that third year remains a mostly awful blur even though we were then living in a relatively safe middle-class area of the city. And before our term ended, we limped home, feeling mostly like failures and wondering why God had not protected Mert, particularly since we were convinced we were doing God's will by living in a favela. Once we returned to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a good friend suggested we both do eight-day silent retreats at a Jesuit retreat center in Berks County. So I met with my spiritual director, Father John Carboy, every morning for about 30 minutes. And halfway through the week, Father John looked at me directly and said, David, I can tell that you weren't raised this way, but I just want you to know that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Father John was right. Although my parents were both wonderfully loving, my church was clear that God's love was very conditional on the right beliefs and on the right behavior, and thus quite fickle and easily lost. Father John's sentence opened my eyes to the reality that God is an unconditionally loving parent and that there is nothing you or I could ever do to lose God's love. I'm grateful that my eyes were opened.
Well, thank you, Susan and David. This thing of someone speaking a truth into our lives that changes the direction of our life path is, of course, inspired by the story in Acts 9, where Ananias did that very thing for Saul. Acts chapter 9, in many of your Bibles, has a heading like Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. That's accurate. Problem is, we have a shallow understanding of conversion. In the Christian world, conversion implies that one of two things happened. Either someone converted from one religion to another, Buddhist to Christian, Hindu to Muslim, etc., or someone converted from a life of evil, sin, and depravity to a new life of godliness, peace, and joy. Acts 9 doesn't fit that mold. Saul of Tarsus had neither of those conversions. Saul, later renamed Paul, did not convert from one religion to another. He was a Jew to the core and remained so after his conversion. Saul did not become a Christian. This was long before the schism that separated Judaism and Christianity. What happened was that Saul then joined a small Jewish movement known as the People of the Way. He kept studying Torah, attending synagogue, practicing Sabbath, eating kosher food. It's just that he started doing those things while hanging out, hanging out with other Jewish disciples of Jesus. Furthermore, Saul did not convert from depravity to godliness. He did not once reject God and now embrace God. He didn't turn from being self-centered to God-centered. Saul had a sterling reputation. He was righteous and religious, passionate and zealous, but a good man. Both before his encounter on the road to Damascus and after his encounter, Paul was a zealot for his faith, for his people, for his God, for his tradition. Before and after his conversion, he believed deeply that his religious framework was right and holy and God-breathed. He believed it was essential for salvation. It was a necessary good that needed to be defended. That was why he was on the road to Damascus. He was in an epic struggle on behalf of Torah, the temple, and the kingdom of God. He was being obedient to God who had called him to this ministry. In fact, he had a letter from God's high priest that proved he was being obedient to his God. Saul strongly believed, along with other religious leaders, that these people of the way were a mortal threat to them as a Jewish people. Saul had noble intentions. The same noble intentions, incidentally, that the religious leaders had a few years earlier 
when they turned to Jerusalem against Jesus. Both were motivated by the noble intentions of keeping the peace. Palestine was still occupied by the brutal Roman Empire, so it was to everyone's benefit to peacefully coexist until the political situation changed. If these radical people of the way gained even more ground, causing more unrest, Herod and Caesar would turn against the Jews with all the military might of Rome, and they could be wiped out forever. Saul knew he was right about his mission. He was doing God a favor by fighting for the right. He had a pure heart and a clean conscience as he went town to town, leading the charge to tamp down this resistance movement, throwing disciples of Jesus in prison, making sure they wouldn't live to do it again. He was on God's side, no doubt about it. But then a funny thing happened on the road to Damascus. Saul was converted to a different way of seeing the reality that was already around him. And ironically, or maybe not so ironically, a new and keener vision emerged after he was struck blind. After a courageous pastoral visit by Ananias, Saul's blindness was healed, and he was folded into the very community he was trying to destroy. He now belonged to the people of the way, the disciples of Jesus. His zeal for God and God's purposes did not change. It continued undiminished, but it was redirected. And his motivation remained exactly the same, to preserve the work of God of Israel and to help usher in the reign of God. Wow. Just think about this for a minute. This story both inspires me and it, I don't mean this the way it sounds, I mean it the way, exactly the way I'm saying it, it scares the hell out of me. And it should scare the hell out of all of us. I'm not swearing, I'm speaking literally. So many religious people and especially religious leaders have a righteous zeal for God and God's agenda that can so easily be co-opted and used by the devil, by the powers of hell. Our zeal for what we think are the priorities of heaven can sometimes have hellish consequences, giving evil a stronger foothold in the world. 
Now, it doesn't take much effort or imagination to find countless examples of this in the world, where this is precisely what is happening. Religious warfare is a thing. It has cost millions of human lives throughout history. Nearly every major religion of the world has carried out a holy war at one time or another. There's an interesting argument that the war in Ukraine has some of those elements. But we can't point fingers only at the global stage. On a much smaller scale, on a personal scale, it's something I need to guard against. Does my zeal for God's agenda, or what I assume is God's agenda, despite my most noble intentions, ever end up getting co-opted by the powers of evil? That should sober up any one of us. Thankfully, Saul's eyes were opened. He saw the light. His religious framework was rebuilt and his zeal redirected. Otherwise, this world may never have known about this fringe movement within Judaism. The other thing to point out here is that Saul was not persuaded by hearing a more convincing argument. For Saul, there was no rational pathway that would lead him to a different point of view. It took an existential crisis, a blinding and earth-rattling encounter for him to finally see. Well, for him to be blinded and then to see. You know, when it comes to present-day application, this cuts across the whole theological spectrum of who we are. This is no defense of liberalism against conservatism or vice versa. I'm not arguing for an uncritical openness to everything of of course, there's a place for being wisely discerning, carefully discriminating between right and wrong. But especially now, in a time that we are so deeply divided politically, culturally, racially, socially, theologically, all of us, once in a while, need to take a deep breath and ask ourselves some hard questions. We need to at least entertain the passing thought that we could be missing something. That there could be a point of view that we haven't seen yet. Then, if God is trying to reach us, trying to open our eyes to a new and more life-giving perspective on what is true, maybe God could get through to us with something a little gentler 
than knocking us to the ground and striking us blind. We should always at least entertain the notion that our perspective is limited. We should get used to the sound of our voice saying the most dreaded phrase in the English language, I could be wrong. When we say that out loud and mean it, we open up our lives just a crack, enough to let some light in, enough for the Spirit to get hold of us and do the real work of transformation from inside out. If our aim is to be transformed, to become the whole human person God created us to be, then we need to never stop listening and to never stop thinking that we have something to learn. It's good to have convictions. It's also good to hold those convictions with some humility. Yes, let's name and affirm what we believe to be true and God helping us. Let's live by what we believe to be true at this time. But let's also nurture a holy openness of mind and spirit because God still speaks. So let's keep listening. And this isn't a malady that affects only the young and brash. It's not automatic that the older we get, the more we realize how much we don't know. Any of us at any age are likely to be living with some illusions. The thing about an illusion is we never know it when we have one until we are given the gift of disillusionment. Because we are human, the direction our lives are moving should always be subject to change. Whether we are young and exploring many possible paths or whether we have already lived the biggest chunk of our life. The stories that we heard from Susan and David both happened when they were, I believe, in the first half of their lives. I hope I'm still practicing the art of being willing to change direction when the Spirit speaks, whether that's through an Ananias or a Mary McClellan or a Jesuit spiritual director or through one of you, my church family. But since we all fall short in this way, let's join together with some words of confession. You'll find it in your bulletin, in the online order of worship, or on the screens. God, we confess we are often a living contradiction. 
we outwardly project unquestioned certitude and conviction while concealing from others and ourselves our nagging doubts and lingering questions. God of the in-between spaces, meet us here at the intersection of overconfidence and self-doubt. Show yourself to us on the road, not to dispel all doubt, but to reassure us of your love and presence as our journey turns in new directions. Heal us, forgive us, accompany us. The God of Saul and Ananias is with us still. Jesus meets us where we are, shows us what we need to see, and promises to stay with us on the road wherever it leads. Amen.